we've been wired by God to place our confidence in something. I was thinking just this past week about how my kids demonstrate this reality in their relationship with me. The other day, my son had gotten the leaf blower and he had that thing going. And at one point, he turned it to my youngest daughter and she got a blast of a frightful force of wind. Of course, she started crying, scared her. So I picked her up and held her in my arms. And I said, Calvin, why don't you try that again? I wouldn't, you know, that wasn't a, a test or anything. And that was actually one command that he enjoyed obeying. So he went at it and blasted us with a shot of wind from the blower. And how do you think Eva responded? She was good with it. That's right. She knew she could be confident in daddy's arms. Well, when it comes to the eternal matters, there are no better arms to be in than than the arms of the Father. Amen? And those arms are found in the gospel. And we can be confident in the gospel, church. But we have some enemies of the flesh you and I buy into at times. They are the enemies of fear and shame. And while there are certainly times in our lives where fear and shame are appropriate, we should fear God because our rebellion against Him brings consequences. And we should be ashamed of our sin because sin is shameful. We should always find ourselves firmly wrapped in the secure arms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should find confidence in the gospel, brothers and sisters. But why? Why is it that the gospel should elicit a response of trust from us? Why is that? That's what I seek to answer this morning. And the Apostle Paul is going to tell us from Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, the reasons why we should be confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, one more invitation if you have your Bible. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, you can look uh, in front of you in the chairs Underneath the chair there could be a Bible there. Please use that and turn to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. And as you're, you're turning there, like I said before, we're entering into two of the most important verses in the book of Romans, verses 16 and 17. They represent the theme of the book of Romans. Uh, Imagine these two verses. They are the heart that pumps the lifeblood throughout the whole of the epistle to the Romans. These are vitally important verses. And from them, we'll be encouraged to conclude that we should be confident in the gospel because, number one, it is the expression of God's power. Verse 16 tells us that the gospel is the expression of God's power. If we're going to look for a place where the demonstration of God's power is on perfect display, we should look nowhere else than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be confident because it is the expression of God's power. Then number two, the second reason we should be confident in the gospel is because it is the revelation of God's righteousness. Verse 17 is where... We get this from. So we discover from verse 17 uh, the reality that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And we'll definitely talk more about what the righteousness of God means as we get into the exposition. So for these reasons, we should be confident in the gospel. But let's look specifically at the scripture for these claims. Beginning in verse 16, 
the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is not ashamed of that message about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died in the place of sinners on the cross and rose from the dead so that everyone who would repent and trust in Christ would be saved. Paul was not ashamed of that message. To put it positively, Paul was proud of the gospel. He was confident in the gospel and proud to be identified with Jesus through his gospel. And we read about this unashamedness of the gospel from this verse where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He was without shame. And the evidence of this unashamedness is plain to see from the life of Paul as recorded in the pages of Scripture. Listen to one commentator who gives just a brief summary of the wonderful things that Paul went through as a result of standing up for the gospel. Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi for preaching the gospel, chased out of Thessalonica for preaching the gospel, smuggled out of Berea because his life was in danger for preaching the gospel, laughed at in Athens for preaching the gospel, He had preached in Corinth where his message was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. And out of that background, Paul declared that he was proud of the gospel. How's that for your best life now? Laughed at, smuggled away from places, in danger with his life, suffering, being persecuted. That was what Paul went through. And all because he was not ashamed of the message of Jesus. He was proud of the gospel of Christ. What's the big deal about shame? Why does Paul have to say that he's not ashamed? Well, in one sense, shame is something common to the experience of all humans, is it not? We've all done things we're ashamed of. We've all experienced that feeling of, man, if so-and-so knew that I did this, he would be disappointed in me. Maybe some of us are sitting this morning in the seat, the physical seat, and there's figurative something that we're sitting on that we're ashamed of. We are, as human beings, uh, no doubt um, foreign to the concept of being ashamed of things. But here's the point I want to make about shame. In every case where shame grips us, there's one universal response that characterizes everyone, and it is this. We don't want to talk about our shame. Shame in our hearts silences our tongues. But shame is not limited to the bad things we do. We can become ashamed of something in our lives that we shouldn't be ashamed of, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a temptation for Christians to be ashamed of the gospel such that we don't even speak about it. Paul knew this, and this is why he puts a statement in the negative. I am not ashamed of the gospel. One commentator making the comment as to why it is that Paul said, not ashamed, put it in the negative. He says this, the negative formulation is to be explained as reflecting Paul's sober recognition of the fact that the gospel is something of which Christians will, in this world, constantly be tempted to be ashamed of. Church, just think of the message of the gospel. It's about a God who became a man subjecting himself to suffering and the limitations of a man who at the end of his life was nailed to a tree and lifted up in shame. 
the unbeliever scoffs at that message and will think it foolishness to believe it. They will say, how could any sane person worship as a God, a man who had been condemned as a criminal and subjected to the most humiliating form of execution? That's the natural response from anybody who would hear something about the message of the gospel. But you know what? People were saying the same thing 2,000 years ago. Our brothers and sisters who lived their lives in the context of the book of Romans, they knew that the context in which they lived, they would be preaching a gospel, speaking and living for a gospel that the world around them thought was foolishness and shameful. Archaeologists were digging around at Rome and discovered on the wall of a house some graffiti. And it turned out it was a caricature of a man worshiping Christ. A crude drawing depicts stretched on a cross a man with the head of a donkey. To the left stands another man with one arm raised in worship. Underneath the drawing are the words Alexamenos Sebetetheon, which is Greek for Alexamenos worships his God. It was a mockery. Here was this family and perhaps a child drawing on the wall of their home a picture that depicts the mockery the shame of crucifixion and anybody who would worship Jesus. That was the context in which our brothers and sisters to whom Paul is writing this letter would have been living. But the shame of crucifixion itself was something that was evident in Rome in uh, even earlier centuries. Cicero, a Roman politician, wrote that crucifixion was a most cruel and disgusting punishment. At a later time, he said the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but liability to them, the expectation, indeed the mere mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Crucifixion was shameful to even mention, to even speak of. And the Jews would have thought the same. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. If a Jew was hung on a tree, he was under God's curse. It would have been shameful to even mention the crucifixion. So you see why Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we can understand why he said, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. You see why he would say in 1 Corinthians 1.8, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The perishing world thinks it foolish to talk about the cross. They think it shameful to even mention it. And so the words of the hymn writer here are true. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised. By the world. But Paul, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. And he knew that temptation would be readily before us, before God's people, to be ashamed of it. But, church, we, like Paul, need not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And if we do go through a little persecution in life in this world, that's okay. Consider it an honor to suffer for Christ. 
and consider it a sign that you belong to him. Listen to Josh Moody who wrote the book No Other Gospel. He said a key sign of our faithfulness to the gospel is that we get beaten up a little by nominal Christians or by the world. If we do not experience any friction with this current age, then it's probably a sign that we're on autopilot spiritually, floating downstream rather than upstream. Don't pray for opposition and don't seek it, but remember that only dead salmon float downstream. Living faith swims upstream against the flow, and there will normally be some friction from the opposing current of the world. That's the reality of living in the gospel, of standing up for Christ. We will have a little opposition, church. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the expression of God's power without shame. And this, is, and this gospel is, is the power of God that results in something. Paul says that um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is God's power for salvation. The gospel has the power that is sourced in God and that power results in salvation. Let's take a look at this word power. The word comes from the Greek word dunamis. Together with a verb form of the word in the New Testament, dunamis appears over 320 times. Uh, After pages of content on the discussion of the word dunamis, a leading dictionary on the New Testament concludes that the word suggests the inherent capacity of something or someone to carry out an activity, whether it be physical, military, political, or spiritual. The gospel then has an inherent capacity. There is built into the message of Jesus Christ an ability. And the gospel, according to verse 16, has the inherent capacity to bring salvation. All of the word, by the way, has this characteristic. It is powerful. We need only think of God's powerful divine word in the Old Testament for Paul's background in Romans 1.16. You might want to write some of these verses down. I just want to refresh your memory and how powerful God's word is. In the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created. God spoke, and it was so. God spoke, and it was so. And that refrain is just repeated. God speaks, and things happen. Psalm 33, 8-9, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 147, 15, He sent forth His command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the sower, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word is powerful, church. It affects change. It brings newness. Whatever God's word says comes to pass. And I believe that God has attached the greatest significance to the demonstration of his power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is for this reason that the apostle Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the source of God's power. 
Again, the commentator Cranfield says, the reason why Paul is not overcome by the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, but on the contrary, exults in it and lives to proclaim it, is that he knows that this apparently weak and foolish message is really, in spite of all appearances, power. And not just one power over against others, but the supreme power, the almighty power of God himself directed toward the salvation of men. God's almighty saving power. I was reminded of the power of the gospel when I was shopping at the grocery store when I was 19. That ought to be evidence in and of itself of my conversion. I was shopping in college for food. A few years before that, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, my dad had been sharing the gospel with me pretty heavily. I wasn't a believer yet, but I knew the gospel. I was in art class one day, and the assignment was to take this square sheet that was made out of clay and carve a piece of art out of that clay with this tool. And with that piece, you know, you could put some paint on it and put it on a shirt or on some piece of paper or something. So, like I said, my dad was sharing the gospel with me me quite a bit during that time. So I just thought I'll just try to put the gospel on this thing. So I carved a man standing at a stop sign with two paths, one that went directly to the cross and another one that was a windy path with lightning bolts and it just didn't look good. It was a bad path, right? And so there was sitting next to me the the best student in the class, all right? And she happened to ask me, what is this that you have created here? Not with that tone. She was from here, America. But uh, she asked me what this was all about, and I began to just, um, 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 it's about uh, this guy who um, um, believes the gospel, and uh, he trusts Jesus to forgive him of his sins, and, um, and he's saved. Literally, I mean, I just stumbled over my words to try to get it out. I was so absolutely nervous. Well, like I said, I was in a grocery store at the age of 19, and I ran into this girl, just out of the blue. And uh, she began talking with me, and she said, you know, I want you to know something. I've become a Christian. And I said, really, that's amazing. Praise God for that. How did that come about? She said, you remember that day that you shared the gospel with me? She got saved as a result of me fumbling over the message of the gospel She got saved from a guy who wasn't even saved yet. Amen. That's the power of the message of the gospel. Folks, you don't have to get cute. You don't have to be crafty. You don't have to have all the answers to every little detail. You don't have to be an apologist that knows the answers to every quagmire and conundrum that comes into the mind of the human being. You have to know the gospel because the power of God is in the gospel. That's where it lies, not in our cuteness, not in our cuteness. The, um, you guys know Charles Spurgeon, right? Okay, Spurgeon said, he said it this way, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. How about that? That's all you got to do, church. Just let the lion out of the cage. That's the gospel. Just let it loose and let it, let it do its work. It's, it's what does the work. It's not us. Paul said, I planted Apollos water, but God caused the growth. 
He's the one who's responsible for saving people, church. We are, and you've heard Ben mention this, we're just ambassadors. We just, we just proclaim the gospel freely. We do it kindly and freely and let God be the one who softens hearts and regenerates sinners so that when that word falls on their hearts, it falls on fertile soil and they repent and believe. That's God's business. But the power of God's in the gospel. The power of God is in the gospel. And notice that it's powerful to affect salvation. And there's a lot of things that the New Testament says that we need to be saved from, but one in particular is sin. I hope that's not new to you. We all need to be saved from sin. And the New Testament speaks about being delivered from sin in three different tenses. There's the past tense of our salvation. The Bible says that when we are converted past tense, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. All right, The wrath of God that was due us was removed from us. The condemnation that was upon us was removed from us. In the past, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. But we're also in the present being delivered from the power of sin. We're being delivered from sin's power in our lives. There's an ability of sin, in a sense, to be able to tempt us. And create and cause sin, if you will. But then there's a third tense in which the Bible and the New Testament speaks about us being saved. And that is from the presence of sin. We will live with the power and the presence of sin, though we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. And all of this church, by the way, all of this salvation, past, present, and future, has the power uh, to overcome it in the gospel. And the reason why this is important, church, is because we think that the gospel is what gets us through the front door, but then beyond that, it has nothing to do with us. And we need to have our minds changed about that because the gospel is not just the power of God to deliver us from the penalty of sin. It's the power to deliver us from the power of sin and the presence of sin. The gospel is completely capable of all those things. So when we talk about the gospel, church, we should not talk about it just as something that we believed when we were converted. We should talk about it as something that is transforming us and changing our lives in the here and now. If you look back just one verse, by the way, in verse 15 in your Bible, notice that Paul says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Who's the you? Christians in Rome. Paul wants to preach the gospel to Christians because we need the gospel too. Believers need the gospel. And the gospel is powerful enough to to save us. And notice that it's powerful enough to save everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel goes out to everyone. The everyone here refers to mankind without distinction. Paul has in mind Jew and Greek, and therefore every creed, class, color of men, there's no distinction. Beautiful picture at the end of the book of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, 9. John presents this picture, this vision of people gathered around Jesus Christ. And it says, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, referring to Jesus, and purchased for God with your blood. Listen to this. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Did you catch it? Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All of these different people will be gathered together in the end as believers to celebrate what Christ has done. 
But before that end time picture is the current time work of the church. The church has a mission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of some nations. Nah, all nations. We're to take the gospel to everybody. The gospel is the seed that we sow regardless of creed, class, or color. And God by his sovereignty draws hearts unto himself. It's the power of God for everyone who believes without distinction. And I should like to draw your attention to the fact that it only saves those who believe. Perhaps you've heard the message that love wins in the end. The Bible knows nothing of love wins in the end in the sense that everybody's going to be saved. No, the Bible says that right here it's to everyone who believes. Everybody who believes the gospel. So the reality of it is, we have got one shot at it. And if, I'm, if you're here today and, and you haven't trusted in Christ, recognize you've got one shot at believing the gospel message. Because the book of Hebrews says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. You die once and then you're judged. There's no chance at that point. We have to respond now. So church, this is why we as Christians got to be busy about sowing the seed of the gospel. We've got to sow the seed liberally, frequently, freely, and kindly. Because there's one shot. But it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. So, it's only efficient for those who are plugged in to the gospel. As the story goes, there was once a vacuum cleaner salesman. Convinced of his product, he went to the farmhouse of an old lady... The moment she opened the door, he was off. Ma'am, this vacuum cleaner is the best, best vacuum cleaner ever. It will vacuum up anything, dirt, food, spills, dust, you name it. The old lady tried to stop him, sir, but he just kept on going. Ma'am, pushing the door open. If this vacuum cleaner doesn't pick all this stuff up, and the salesman's pulling out bags of dirt and trash and spreading it all over a carpet and hardwood floor. If this vacuum cleaner doesn't pick all this stuff up in less than two minutes, I'll eat it all up with a spoon. And that little old, lady, well, you, little old lady said, well, you better get to eating because I ain't got no electricity. <laughs> the message of the gospel has all the power in it to save, but it's only effective in people who are plugged into it. We must have faith. Founder of Dallas Seminary, Lewis Berry Chafer, would say to his students, men, as you share the gospel, don't give them something to do. Give them something to believe We're giving people something to believe in, to put their trust in, to put their confidence in. We should be confident in the gospel because it is the expression of God's power. We should also be confident in the gospel because it is the revelation of God's righteousness. It is the revelation of God's righteousness. Take a look at verse 17. Paul says, For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. The gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Quick word about this word righteousness here. The word righteousness is not a word that we use very often, do we? I mean, we're not out in our everyday conversations with people and they start using the word righteousness, right? 
we may use words like justice or just. Those are pretty typical words that we hear from people. And those, that word is very similar to the word righteousness uh, the farther along we get here in our explanation of this word. But in biblical times, the word righteousness, you can write this down, simply meant conformity to a standard. Conformity to a standard. If Phoebe went to the marketplace to purchase a measure of grain, she would be looking for her purchase of grain to conform to the standard of a measure. So imagine with me, Phoebe, Phoebe would walk up to Rufus, uh, the merchant, and he would, uh, she would ask for a measure of grain. And Rufus would say, okay, there would be a table set out before him and there would be a scale in front of Rufus and he would pull out uh, a weight that would equal a measure and he would drop it on one side of the scale and then he would take that bag of grain and begin dumping it on the other side of the scale until the scale balanced. And that was called a righteous transaction. A righteous transaction because this had conformed to this over here. The Bible talks about our relationship with God this way. God thinks about our lives as a comparison to his life. And over on this side over here is the holiness of God, his perfection, his glory. That's the weight that's dropped on this side of the scale. And over here is our good deeds, our righteousness, our holiness. And the Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short over here on this side of the glory of God. As sinners, we can't measure up to God. That's where the idea of measuring up to God comes from. We have fallen short. We don't measure up. And to this, there's typically one of two responses from people. There's one response, and we'll call this one the response of a moral journey. These people map out how they're going to improve themselves, how they're going to add enough righteousness to this side over here in order to measure up. This was the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. He fell in line with the religious system of the day that put together a works-based righteousness, a way of doing enough works to add to the scale so as to earn a right standing with God. Many people in Paul's day were committed to this moral journey response. But this response was just not something prominent in his day. This quest for moral reformation as the means of measuring up to God is a response that people had east of Eden. And yes, even in our day, many think that the path to measure up to God is by adding enough good works to the scale. If I can just stay on this path, performing one good deed a day, that will balance the scale, they may reason. This past week, Ligonier Ministries, in partnership with Lifeway Research, produced their biannual report on the state of evangelicalism. It's called the State of Theology Among other statements, they provided evangelicals, those who identified as evangelicals, with this statement and asked them to state whether they agree or disagree. The statement was, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Staggering response. 52% agreed with that. These are people who identify as Christians. So they would agree with the moral journey response. 
Turning to the Bible, it says that as humans, we are sinful. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Even the good things we do are tainted with sinful motives and twisted desires. Yes, the proverbial Jane and John Doe may do a great deed for Habitat for Humanity, offering millions of dollars to improve the lives of certain people. But I can tell you that brewing in the heart of those individuals is a desire to make sure that the Joneses know how good they are. Not the Joneses in this church, I'm just saying, you know. See, in the heart of every good deed of a sinful person is the desire not to please God, but to please themselves. We can multiply examples, couldn't we? Because we all, as human beings, live with the reality of sin in our own hearts. We know that we're sinful. There's another response, however. It's called the faith response. How's that for originality? Faith response. This is the only response that God is prepared to accept. It's the response that looks at the scales of righteousness and recognizes how light I am in comparison to the holiness of God. It looks at the scales and recognizes that God is too holy for me to reach. My righteousness cannot fill up what is lacking in the scale. I see that even the good things that I do are tainted and twisted with desires that are in no way shaped after the glory of God. And this faith response says, I cry out in mercy, God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. For I have no hope whatsoever. I turn to Christ who died for my sins. I repent and believe in him. And by trusting in him, I believe that I am forgiven. I come to zero. But your righteousness, Jesus, is placed on this side over here. Scales balanced. Church, we need to recognize that in the gospel, we're not just forgiven of sins. Because that would give us zero over here. A righteousness is given us. A righteous that, righteousness that's not our own. It's the righteousness of Jesus. It's called double imputation. My sin is imputed to Jesus' account as if he committed all my sin. His righteousness, his perfect life is imputed to my account as if I committed all good deeds. That's the message of the gospel. That's glorious. And that's why the righteousness of God, part of what it means right here is God's gift of righteousness. God gives righteousness as a gift by faith. But notice that I said that it's part. It's part of what Paul means. He also has something to say beginning in chapter 6 about the righteous life of the believer. He begins talking about the fact that uh, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are new people. And because we are new people, we are to live our lives not in unrighteousness, but in holiness. But right at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul states with a rhetorical question, the impossibility of a person who has died to sin to continue to live in sin. Listen to verse 1. How shall we who died to sin continue in it? 
Paul is denying the possibility that if we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can go on living in a life of sin. It's not possible. We have been regenerated. We have a new nature. And so God not only imputes righteousness to us, he imparts righteousness. Righteousness is imputed and imparted. Imputed and imparted. There's a practical outworking of this righteousness in our lives. And notice what is sufficient for this. The gospel. It's the gospel. It's it's not like we come into Christianity and we leave the gospel and it was sufficient for that but not for daily living. No, it's sufficient for practical righteousness. It's sufficient for practical righteousness. So when Paul speaks about the righteousness of God in one seventeen, he means the righteousness that imputes and the righteousness that imparts. The righteousness that changes our status and changes our lives. The righteousness that is transactional and transformational. It's a full-fledged righteousness that God has provided for us. Commentator Tom Schreiner brings this together. When he says in his commentary on Romans, those whom God has vindicated, he also changes. The saving righteousness of God is a free gift received by faith alone. And God declares sinners to be in the right before him on the basis of Christ's atoning death. Yet God's declaration of righteousness is an effective declaration. So that those who are pronounced righteous are also transformed by his grace. That's powerful. A grace that saves and a grace that sanctifies. Amen. All in the gospel. We should be encouraged again afresh by the power of the gospel. Now notice that all of this is by faith. Okay, it's not faith plus works, right? We don't come into the Christian faith. We believe in the objective truth of the gospel and then we just leave faith. No, we continue to live life by faith. We continue to walk from faith to faith. This is what Paul says. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. From faith to faith. There are, I'm going to tell you, 10 interpretations of this. As I scoured the commentaries, there's a bunch of explanations for from faith to faith. And I'll tell you what I think is the best, best explanation. And context will color this. From initial faith to final faith. From first faith to beginning faith. When the gun goes off in the race of, of the Christian life to the time that we cross the finish line, it's all by faith. From faith to faith, from the first faith to the very end, it's all by faith. I love that song, uh, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. From life's first cry, not not as, as a baby, but as a newborn Christian, when we are regenerated, we are born again from that first cry to life's last breath. Jesus commands my destiny, and it's all by faith, church. It's all by faith. And notice that Paul goes on here and gives some Old Testament background to this reality because one of the things that we've got to be careful of is thinking that somehow in the Old Testament it was by works and then in the New Testament it's by faith. No, 
Notice the prophet Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk here is quoted by Paul. Just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. It always has been by faith. And we could, if we wanted to, and we had another hour or two or six or ten, we could go to Hebrews chapter 11 and we could talk about the hall of faith. Because all of those individuals are saints from the old covenant. And it's all by faith. It always has been by faith. And what a fitting verse for us to be taking a look at today because the month of October is a month where Protestants celebrate the Protestant Reformation. And it was this verse right here that transformed and changed Martin Luther's life. He read, the righteous by faith will live. He had been hearing all this stuff about works and penance and doing penance from the Catholic Church. And he read this verse and he said, something doesn't compute. Something doesn't fit here. And he began studying. He discovered that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not of our works. It's all of God. Because all the glory is to go to him. Amen? What a fitting verse for us to take a look at. From beginning to end, it's all of faith. Well, church, I hope that we're encouraged today. Because when we leave this place, we need to remember that the gospel is something that deserves our confidence because it is the expression of God's power and it is the demonstration of his righteousness. And we should walk out of here believing that as I leave this place as a child of God, God has given me the gospel as the thing I defend, as the thing I love, as the thing I preach to myself and I preach to others and I bask in it and I live in it and I love it and I daily am cleansed by it. The gospel church, the gospel. Great granting words. The seed of my soul is calmed when it hurts. The gospel, the gospel. Let's believe it today, church. It's sufficient. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.